You're listening to Freshly Brewed, Episode 6. I'm your host, Jeff. Every once in a while, you come across a story that stops you dead in your tracks. That's what recently happened to me after hearing the story of Mark Roseman. Mark was a well-known attorney based in California. He graduated from a prestigious school and used the early part of his legal career to fight for noble and important causes. But one day, Mark's life took a dramatic turn. He was sentenced to two years in prison. As Mark describes, this was the moment where he lost his freedom. This is the moment where he was forced into a totally new environment, a jail with an unknown culture and set of unwritten rules. Just think about what that experience must have been like. Two years after serving his time, Mark began the noble, difficult journey of putting his life back on track. He accomplished a ton and he used what he learned to help others and today, he is a successful author, speaker, legal consultant, and executive director. Today, I have the absolute privilege of speaking with Mark. I have the privilege of hearing more about Mark's story, of hearing about how he began his career fighting for childhood sexual abuse survivors when it wasn't even that popular or widely recognized to do so, of hearing more about his accomplishments as a lawyer, temporary judge, and author. And I have the privilege of hearing more about his experiences in and learnings from prison. Mark is authentic, direct, and this is an episode that you just don't want to miss. So keep your ears open and let's get going. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Freshly Brewed. Here's your host, Jeff Fenton. Episode six of Freshly Brewed. I am joined here by someone across not just my country, but across the continent who's in California, Mr. Mark Roseman. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. So, Mark, before we get into any of the uh, any of the real stuff, I love to find out during this time, how are you coping with this uh, with the social isolation business? Where are you? What's your uh, what's your covid setup, so to speak? <laughs> My COVID setup. I'm I'm in Rio Vista, California, which is Northern California, uh, right between equidistance between Oakland, San Francisco, and uh, San and and Sacramento. It's the California Delta area where the um, Sacramento River converges converges with a whole bunch of other rivers and ends up in the Pacific Ocean. And are you are you adapting well to this or is this a, a change for you given given your normal life i find everyone's got a, a different experience during this time well i have an online business so i usually work at home anyhow so there's no big changes there uh, i live in a town where there's one traffic light and no starbucks so there's there's not a, a heavy uh, population density uh, but uh, i we, we do when we see each other we do do equidistance and uh, i do get food delivered and i kind of uh walk outside uh when i like to just just to get out so my life hasn't changed all that much okay i, I would say similar to me except i find myself drinking more coffee so <laughs> i don't know if you found your caffeine intake has changed at all well actually i don't i never have drunk drank coffee so i don't know that experience I'm, I'm gonna I'm have gonna, to. I'm gonna have to kick you off the podcast after you do that. <laughs> well, I'm gonna start now, though. Hey, there's always a first for everything. So, Mark, I want to. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. You you 
have and continue to share on your own channels a story that I think is is one of a kind. And without jumping too far ahead, I'd actually like to start by hearing kind of Mark's Mark's story from the beginning, your childhood, uh, where you came from, and then we'll go from there. Certainly. Well, I was born in Brooklyn uh, in 1949, so you can do the math. And I grew up in Long Island, Westbury, Long Island, went to school there. Uh, my, my chosen avocation was to be a veterinarian, but uh, uh, organic chemistry did me in, and I, that was not the way to go for me. So I switched to law. And I went to law, law school and graduated law school in 1978 and practiced law for 20, 21 years in California. And along the way, I have uh, three grown sons that live in Orange County and San Diego County. And I kind of skip really fast. Uh, is there any more detail you'd like? I like you. Hey, you're a man. You're a man of efficiency. Typically, the opposite of a lawyer. I found that they like to draw things out and charge more. That's my. Uh, that's my stereotype of a, of a lawyer. I, I am curious. Was was your experience as a lawyer, especially early on, consistent with what you had seen in TV or or had sort of seen in the media, or was it actually quite different? It it was quite different. Uh, in the media, for, for a lawyer that's practiced law and been a trial attorney, watching the media, uh, watching movies where there's trials is almost painful because it's not quite like that. The, the rules of evidence aren't really uh, in place in, in, uh, on TV. Uh, and when that lawyer says objection and the judge says sustained, well, what's he objecting to? They don't, they don't state the objection. There's an example. Um, and it's not that melodramatic. There are moments, and I've had my Perry Mason moments, but I can count them on uh, three fingers. <laughs> I, growing up, I watched a lot of Matlock, uh -huh. uh, which tells you a little bit about my my sad childhood. And I I always wanted to be a lawyer because of that. And my parents, who who both by training are lawyers, told me that it's my life is not going to be like Matlock. So if I become a lawyer, so <laughs> I, I asked that because it does seem a little different in, in reality. You, you talk about how early on you were fighting for causes that at the time weren't all that popular or weren't being widely recognized. I imagine even if they were recognized, it'd be nothing like today where, you know, social media spreads things like wildfire. Uh, what was that experience like and what causes were you fighting for? The cause I was fighting for pr primarily was uh, I represented uh, uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse. This was in the early 90s when it was not uh, in vogue, if you will. Mm. It was uh, it was a, it was a tough area to practice, but I I, I uh, I've always represented people who have uh, who don't know how to access the system, the judicial system, don't know what their rights are, feel powerless. And I work with that population quite a bit. And uh, I, my specialty was actually clergy sexual abuse here in California against, uh, you name it, any denominations. It's not about sex. It's about power. Uh, when I started practicing the statute of limitations for bringing a, a lawsuit in, in traumatic amnesia, recovered memories, you may have heard of that. People that don't necessarily make the connection between their, their psychological injury and trauma from childhood, mm -hmm. uh, there was a statute limitation of one year. Uh, 
oh post, post-majority. And I worked early on in 1995, 1996, changing the law in California to extend that statute to age 26 and beyond. So people had a chance to access the, the civil litigation uh, uh, courts for hopefully get their remedies. But it, it was hard. It was a very, very difficult. If you saw the movie Spotlight, which highlighted uh, what happened in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, I was kind of like the main character in there who was doing the civil work. Uh, there was no one around to support you. The Catholic Church was doing everything that it could to decimate your your case. Um, a lot of it was against the Catholic Diocese of Los Angeles, uh, Santa Ana, California, and also San Diego. And there was a very formidable block uh, where they would not uh, they would fight the cases um, like you know like like you don't see today. They, they just took a very, very adverse position. So that motivated me. <laughs> that kept me going. So much of, of what I read or see seems to suggest that resources will often dictate your outcome. Uh, in a word, yes. <laughs> um, the, bringing, uh, being a plaintiff in a civil lawsuit in this country these days is... Um, you need a you need you need to you need to have an arsenal um, of of funds and access and experts depending on the nature of the case. But if you're bringing an action against the diocese of of Los Angeles, let's say, you need to have an arsenal. And as attorneys who work on contingencies, they get paid when the, when and if there's a settlement or a verdict. Uh, that's hard on lawyers. And that can break the bank, so to speak. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, to, just to think about then how many groups, no matter how incredible their case is, they don't have that arsenal, they're yeah. screwed. So somewhere along your journey, you experience something that most don't. You are sentenced to two years in prison. And I've certainly never cro- come across anyone who you know, is, is open to speaking about this um, as candidly as you are. And so I'm grateful that you're joining me here to, to talk about it and that you've already shared so much in your book and online. It, can we talk a little bit about that experience and how that came to be? Of course, yes. I have start with, um, I wrote a book in, uh, in, in 2016. It's called Derailed, How Being a Lawyer Taught Me to Survive in Prison. And I, I would, I returned from, from, I would return to the streets in 20, 2005. I've been out for going on 15 years. And I will say this, it's not one day that I don't think about the experience in prison because it was so impressionable due to the fact that it was so traumatic. And I wrote this book. It took me 10 years to write it because it was so difficult to write. It was it was painful. The first three chapters have to do with how did I get to prison? Uh, you know, it's a nice Jewish boy grew up on Long Island. We never generally that's not the profile of a, of a person that goes to, to prison on the charges that were against me, which was grand theft. And let me explain that. It had to do with money that was misappropriated in my law firm. 
um, I was my law firm was my ex-wife at the time, and I explained in detail what happened, how I was felony stupid by not watching the store like I should have watched the store uh, in terms of finances and money going to clients. But I also admit that I'm 50% responsible for it. Uh, I should have said something. I should have done more. It's a long, painful story. I lay it out in uh, probably in granular uh, in granular detail because I feel it's necessary. When I was writing this, people would always say, "Well, what's well? Tell us why." Like they're asking right now, "How did this happen to somebody like you?" I made bad choices and I made bad decisions, and I paid for it. And when I got to prison i mean i had no idea what to expect no no idea there, there's no there was no youtube on it at the time and there were no there uh, were no there were no uh, prison instagram influencers yet to make it look good there was no instagram <laughs> yes. there, there was nothing like that so i went in with the attitude i'm going to come out better than what i am going in and that was really my mental state at the time. They're not going to break me. I understand it's going to be tough, but I was scared to death, as you can imagine, because I had, I heard stories. I didn't know what to expect. So I, I I did my 25 months. I always get that extra month in there because an extra month of loss of freedom is significant. But the, the book was written over 10 years, and it wasn't a prison. It was not an advocacy book. It was It wasn't at the time. It was more or less, let me tell you what happened to me. Don't let this happen to you. And that wasn't enough. So I broke it down into parts where I emphasized what I saw, what I experienced, what I lived through, and what I thought can and should be done. And the book pretty much parallels that general outline. And I also have written 114 <laughs> blogs uh, that talk about myriad aspects of the criminal justice system and incarceration. I cover all sorts of subjects that I saw and that I see that are important today. So I can talk about more specificity if you'd like about the prison experience. Usually people have lots of questions like that. If you have any in particular that you'd like to ask. Well, first of all, for anyone listening who is curious about this book, I want to make sure that they know the book is called Derailed, How Being a Lawyer Taught Me to Survive in Prison by Mark Roseman. And I, like hopefully many here, you know, can get all of the painstaking details uh, from the book itself. And, and so while I have you here, I'm going to try and really talk about the most pertinent parts. I first want to know, how long between, how long was it between when you were sentenced to when you actually physically had to show up in prison? It was 60 days. I was, um, the judge allowed me 60 days to get my, my life in order and close down what I needed to close down. Um, I was not on bail, which is another issue. I, 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 that was sort of a white privilege that I had because um, I was a community member. I practiced in the court where I was tried and sentenced. Um, by the way, I, the, we didn't go to trial. I, after the first couple of witnesses, I said to my lawyer, I, I can't do this. You know, there's a train wreck coming. Let's let's see if the offer is still good that they, they had put on the table. Uh, and it was. So that's sort of a side story. Um, 
But it was 60 days, and during that 60 days, I visited families in New York, um, said said hellos and goodbyes, and paid off credit cards as best as I could, and you know, just wound my my life down. And I was, I, but I stayed positive. I was afraid, but I was stayed positive. If you can imagine that. Oh my god. I, and again, I'm I'm so grateful, Mark. I really mean this that you're that you share this and that you shared in your book in that in those 60 days is there any part of you that's thinking i'm gonna flee i'm gonna run i'm gonna hide or you you at that point have just come to terms with it and you're you're getting in the mindset of of positivity yes i I was resolved that the fact that was going to happen i was not going to abscond they would find me (laughs) the day you arrive because you see it in movies you see it in tv shows and uh, you, you know, who knows what's fact, what's fi- well, I mean, you know, what's fact, what's fiction. Can you describe what that first day is like? Like, like what's what actually happens on that day? And what is your emotional state on that day? Well, the day was I reported back to the court uh, f- to be taken into custody. So I go to the courtroom where the judge uh, heard the case and and uh, uh, gave a sentence and the first thing you do when you're walked in is you're immediately handcuffed, hands behind you, uh, because now you're in custody. And there were some formalities and some last-minute uh, papers uh, that had to be signed, and then you're taken in the back, uh, behind the judge's chambers in the hallway. And in my particular case, uh, there was an interview uh, of me for about an hour. I'm sitting there handcuffed. Uh, with the DA, because I agreed to um, actually give information, because my ex-wife was also being being uh, prosecuted, and I it's not turning state's witness. I was just giving them information because I wanted to clear the record mm-hmm. uh, based on what what she was saying versus what I was saying. It was a, not a good situation, um, but I felt I wanted to do that. And then about a year later, they actually brought me back from from prison. And I testified in her case. But to answer your question, it's 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 a numbing feeling that you get. It's almost like voices. You hear voices, and they're coming from different places. Your your orientation is completely upside down. That's in the courthouse, uh, and and just being handcuffed, if you could imagine, and you can't scratch your nose uh is uh gets your attention because you can't say okay game's over i want to go home that doesn't happen so the first afternoon i'm taking across the street to orange county's the orange county jail orange county jail is about 20 miles away from disneyland the happiest place in the world and i couldn't that juxtaposition always struck me that ironic (laughs) isn't that yeah and you're Placed in the Orange County Jail, which is probably the closest place to hell I've ever been, uh, as I imagine hell to be. Um, And it was packed. It was just overcrowded with men in plexiglass holding cells where it says maximum capacity 65, and there's got to be 165 people in that cell. And it was outrageous. It was, you could, it's hard to breathe. There's one toilet, there's one drinking fountain, which may or may not be working. Um, but it was in there that I got the words of wisdom that really carried me. 
And uh, I write about it in the book. Uh, I'm in this holding cell where it's very loud. Uh, there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of singing. There's a lot of shouting. Um, and you really can't sit down because there's too many people there. I don't know if you ever experienced that. Like like in an elevator where you can't sit down, it's too crowded. Mm-hmm. And I spot along the, the, the wall. Along the wall, there were cement um, benches all the way around the perimeter. There's nothing soft in prison, okay? Um, that, that was the first thing I learned. And I saw this, this Hispanic man, a Mexican man, who was sitting very, very quietly along the wall. And, and every once in a while, the person next to him would get up, and another man would sit next to him, and, and he would sort of talk to them. And I, I wanted to talk to him because I felt he had some wisdom that I needed. And so eventually I did get a play, the opportunity to sit, sit next to him. Never learned his name. Um, he was uh, an older man, like like dark, leathery skin. He was, But he had bright eyes. And I wanted to hear what he had to say. And I sit down and he doesn't look at me. He just looks forward and he says, first rodeo? <laughs> I said, yeah, <laughs> how'd you tell? Uh, and, uh, and so he says, he says to me, let me give you two pieces of advice. First piece of advice is do the time, don't let the time do you. Because he could tell I was a little bit nervous. Whoa. And then he said to me, don't look anybody in the eye. Okay, I said, okay. All right, why? <laughs> he says, just don't do it. And what he was doing was telling me not to mad dog anybody. It's called mad dogging when you're in prison or a jail and you're a new fish, a new person. If you look in somebody in the eye, you're challenging them. And if you look in somebody in the eye and they say to you, hey, motherfucker, what are you doing? There's no answer. There's no correct answer to that question. You're in, you've got a problem. So I learned not to look at anybody until I earned that that right to actually engage with 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 people to do the time and don't let the time do you really got me through because when the time does you it's like it's like a noose around your neck you can you can't breathe you there's such what's called a prison panic attack where you, you wake up in the morning, it's a beautiful day, you imagine, and there are those four walls. There's, there's, there's that, that prison environment. There's that threat to yourself. And there's a panic. You get a panic. It would happen to me often in the middle of the night sometimes. I would pace back and forth in a, in, a, in, a, in a cell that's six by ten, back and forth, back and forth. Um, you can't get out. You imagine that you can melt and 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 pulverize cement cinder block. You can't. <laughs> so you have to. There's a mind adjustment that's necessary. That he was telling me about. So, oh my. I mean, how long do you have? Do you have three days for this interview? I mean, this is. I have so. Many, I have so many questions, but I'm also grateful you have this book because you, you go into so much more more detail. Yes. So that first night. I mean, first of all, you, you get you get moved into your cell. Is it like what you see in the movies? The bed, the sink, the toilet, someone above you, a bunk bed? Like what, what is what is that cell like compared to what you see in the movies? Well, there are several different configurations. Um, if you have Shawshank Redemption in mind, 
um, there are there are two man cells. There's a one man cell if you're really a bad guy, and then there are um, uh, like what I the converted Costco's. They're like warehouses uh, where I ended up eventually in Blythe, California, in Ironwood State Ironwood State Prison. Um, they're the size of a Costco, and they're filled up with uh, with beds. And in the center is like the eating area and the common area, what they call the day room. Um, so it depends on the configuration that you're in. Um, my first night in the Orange County Jail, you go from jail then to prison. Jail is where they figure out where you're going. Okay. And jail is if you're spending a year or less incarcerated. That's the rule. People don't understand that necessarily. If you go to jail, it's under a year. Uh, if you're going to prison, it's a year or more, and it's for a felony, and mine was a felony. Um, so you, my, my first, wow, my first night incarceration was Orange County Jail, and it was in that stuffed area that where I couldn't sit down or I couldn't lie down. It took 24, 48 hours, actually, to get me into the jail onto a bed. That was the nature of the overpopulation at that time. When I went to prison in California, the prison population was 160,000 people. And that was out of 2.3 million people that are incarcerated throughout the country. So I was one new fish in a, in a, in a fishbowl that was, wow. there were no bubbles. It was just, it was, it was, it was my, my memory of that was standing up, leaning against the wall and nodding off for two days. So there wasn't the, the luxury of a bed. It took about two days before I got into the unit and um, I had a I had a bed. They're not really very comfortable as you can imagine. And there's always noise, it's always loud. Uh, if there's a television, it's always on. And um, it's, it's, it's not very luxurious at all. How long does it take well, I know it's different for everyone. How long did it take you to 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 wake up in the morning, whatever that day was, and say, "Okay, this is my routine. I'm 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 doing this for the next few years." How long did it take you to get to that point? Ooh, well, there were different routines until I actually caught what's called caught the chain and went from the Orange County Jail to Ironwood State Prison, and it's. It was it was difficult to adjust in jail because there were so many people coming and going all the time, and you're mixed with a, a myriad of people uh, of all different natures and types, and and um, there for different reasons that they're acute different crimes. Uh, when in prison, it, be, it finally became a routine, uh, and I you know you get a job, you have your job. You, you know exactly what you're doing every moment of, of, of the day. That's one of the problems about prison and maintaining your sanity is the boredom, the repetition over and over again. And I dealt with that in, in my own particular ways and other men did in their ways. Mine was to, to write. I wrote letters, and I, hundreds and hundreds of letters, which actually reminded me of, of details when I wrote the book. So I, I did that. And I also... I, 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 one of my friends who was a, 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 a um, sociologist, actually an anthropologist, said I was acting like an embedded anthropologist. I was observing all mm. the time. 
And I was observing for two reasons. I was absolutely fascinated by what was going on. And I was afraid of getting killed because it's dangerous in prison. You have to, you have to stand out in a way that's good and not different. And let me explain that for a moment. In prison, anybody that's a little bit different, a little bit strange, um, not quite with the program, is considered uh, dangerous because you're different. You can't be relied upon. There's this brotherhood inside prison that says it's all for one, one for all. And if you're a weak weak link in the chain, you'll get whacked. You're gone. So you have to be real careful about that. So I was a white guy. I was 54 years old when I went in. White Jewish guy, and which is another another story. When I they were checking me through, uh, the the cops. I don't call them correction office correctional officers because they don't correct. I call them cops. Um, and some of them some of them are decent, and some of them are uh, Nazis. What can I say? Yeah. Um, they 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 were going through my checklist, and they're going through you know tattoos, which I don't have any, and. He's, he's looking, he says, hmm, Jewish, uh, you know what? Uh, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't tell them, don't tell me Jewish. Um, and I said, all right, I, I, I guess I can understand that. And he said, don't tell him you were a lawyer. I said, okay, I could, underst- I could understand that too, but um, I think, why lawyer? <laughs> and he says, well, because 99% of the guys inside, they had the public defender. And 99% of them think they got, got got railroaded by a public defender. It's as simple as that. Don't tell me you're a lawyer and don't tell them you're Jewish. I said, okay, I got the Jewish part. Um, and they were totally wrong on both the courts. Totally wrong. Hmm. Because being a lawyer helped save me. That's why the title is How Being a Lawyer Taught Me to Survive in Prison. I had unique skills and abilities that are needed by men inside. Um, and when word got out that I was a lawyer, that was that became my my nickname, lawyer. Um, they would sheepishly come to me and ask me problems. Usually they had, they had a piece of paper in their hand, like, lawyer, what is this? And it could be anything. It could be from family law. It could be immigration papers. It, it could be... Um, Probate papers. One man, one man had inherited, inherited a thousand acres of land in Texas, and he had no idea. He had no idea what it meant. So I was explaining it to him, and that built up goodwill. Um, and when I did that, I never asked for compensation, never asked for anything. But they would maybe give me a, a bag of chips or a, a tube of. Uh, Peanut butter, that was always good to get. Tube of peanut butter and, and jelly, that was great. So it word got around, this guy can help you, and he doesn't ask for anything. And what I what I did, Jeff, was I listened. These men wanted to wanted to be heard. They needed to be heard. They were young and they were scared. Whether they were in the neo-Nazi groups, the what the Asian brothers, um, the uh, not the Asian brothers, the um, um, Aryan brothers. Um, who obviously hate Jews, um, I was able to assimilate with them to a point. Um, so that was kind of my key, was to use the skills that I had, listen to them without being 
um, without responding negatively, without commenting, just listening. And I saw the potential for all these men who had not had an opportunity to get educated, did not have intact families that were just floating and their families were their gangs. And that's kind of the key to my success inside the, the prison. Okay. I have so, again, I have a lot of questions, but, but my first question is you, you mentioned early on, you know, you, you know, looking someone in the eye or not joining the right group, you know, you're going to get whacked, you're going to get killed, you're going to get hurt. One of the mysteries I've always, or one of the things I've always wondered is how does that actually happen in prison when you have guards? Is it just that the guards are complicit and people will come up to you and physically start hurting you for no reason? Or is there something else going on that, you know, the public doesn't really know or doesn't really see? What the public doesn't know and what they doesn't see, and I'm talking now about California prison system. California prison system is a is a, a state-run um, racist organization. And, 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 what I'm, and I write extensively about this. Um, there are four races in the California prisons. There's, there's your whites, there's your blacks, there's your um, Hispanics, and then there's everybody else, the others they call them people that are Asian, people that have long names that end in vowels, uh, people from uh, Polynesian uh, nations, and they don't mix other than on occasion. The blacks and, and, and Hispanics could, for example, play baseball together or play cards together or walk the track outside together or exercise together. Whites and blacks never, ever ever engaged in any social activities together, unless it was in the chapel. Religion was kind of like uh, the common denominator. But there are strict rules uh, that I write about it in the book. It's, it's basically a game of how you interact with races. So the, the cops are in a vast minority and they really are afraid of the inmates. Because you could have two cops in a dorm that had 200 men. And 200 men can take over two cops real easy. Right. But they don't because, in, in my instance, it was a one yard, which is a, this, the lowest level in California. It's four, four, one to four. Four is like San Quentin where they have the, uh, the death penalty. Um, but they were mostly short timers. Anybody in the five years is short timer. Um, and so the, the cops just sort of like are there. Um, there certainly are emergencies where they're needed. I mean, I've seen, I've seen horrible things happen in front of my bunk with, with, with knife attacks and, and, and fist attacks, which, um, that you don't, you end up not seeing if you know, there's an investigation, you never see anything cause you can't cause you become a rat. That's a, I write about rats a lot in the book. You don't want to be a rat cause you're dead. Um, it's a society that is very repressive, not so much by the administration of the of the uh, of the prison system. It's the it's the inmates that have their own judicial system, and each race. Getting to your question, has what's called the called the holder of the key to the car. The car is your race. I was a white race. We were called Woods, um, and there was one guy that was the head of it all, 
And he was the one that told the whites when they're going to fight, when they're not going to fight, when they're going to engage in any way, when they're going to go on strike. And so there were four main people on the yard who represented each of the races. And it was they who made the decisions uh, that had to do with uh, standing our ground, keeping our ground. You understand in prison, you don't have your own space. You're like the place in front of your your bunk is called your street, and your street is within a neighborhood within uh, the, uh, the 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 environment, and so it's a drawback to territory. You don't have territory, so your bed is your is your is your home and your castle. And if someone walks and maybe this happened in front of me, someone walks over someone else's sock. You can disrespect someone's sock in prison. You certainly can disrespect that person. But another thing I write about with a lot of detail inside, respect is a very important part of being safe in prison if you're an inmate. So when when, when people kill each other or hurt each other, yeah. it's happening with fists, with knives? Where are they getting the weaponry to do this? <laughs> Uh, inmates are very creative. You, you, they call ships. You, you can make a knife out of just about anything. See, okay. Uh, um, it's it's a whole underground process. Yeah. So while you're in there, what are you looking forward to the most? What is giving you the the mental resolve or the you know will to keep going? Well, I think it's called resilience. Um, it's it's keep maintaining a positive outlook as best you can. And certainly with times when I was depressed, and I know that. But overall, keeping positive and and having something to do, and 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 achieving something, doing something that is a, helping somebody else or helping myself. But it's having a purpose because prison strips you down of your humanity. You are a number, literally. You are the last four of your CDC number, your California Department of Correction number. Um, you're all dressed the same. You all do the same, everything together. Um, it's, um, it's a dehumanization process that you have to mentally elevate above. And men did it differently in different ways. Some used music, some used art, some used sports. Um, some used um, uh, uh, they had deals. I mean, they had underground stuff. They had, you know, they had they had they had their little ways of surviving themselves. So men are creative. Men and women are creative, and there's a lot of creativity going on inside the prison walls. I know it must depend on the level of security and probably even the state in your situation. What type of, I'm going to say luxuries, but I'm using air quotes right now. What mm -hmm. sort of luxuries or resources or entertainment did you have at your disposal, if at all? Like, were there computers you could access? Were you able to make calls? Were there, did they let you watch TV? Like, what are the types of things you could do that somewhat resembled a luxury of non-prison or non-jail society? Uh, first of all, no computers. It was that there's no, there were no computers. There were no cell phones. 
although cell phones are in the prisons now, but they're smuggled in. Uh, we would never think about it. So there were um, phone calls that you could make out after after chow at night. There was a certain amount of time and a certain number of phones on the wall. You signed up ahead of time and you could make collect calls. And you knew that your call was being monitored because they told you it was. Um, so you look forward to calling family, just connecting in. In my particular case, I was, I was fortunate, Jeff, because I, I had an intact family and they were very, very supportive of me. I was in the minority and I knew that, um, but I appreciated that. So there was that. There was, you know, mail time, getting mail. Um, I got a lot of mail because I wrote a lot of mail and the men knew that Roseman's going to get a lot of mail. Uh, and, and, you know, I felt kind of uncomfortable about that, but you know, but they knew I also wrote a lot. Um, there's, there were moments when they would break in the routine and the breaks in the routine were like, maybe if the yard was good. We had a pizza day, uh, where they actually brought in pizza, which had flavor, but <laughs> prison food has no flavor and that you could get Coke, uh, Coca-Cola. Um, and cause there were no sodas. You don't get soda uh, at all, nothing carbonated in prison. So there were little things like that. Um, in my particular case, there was a, a Jewish chaplain that would come around about once a month. And I look forward to seeing him because he spoke the King's English because English gets really bastardized in prison. And I, I love the English language and I appreciate the words. And, um, in fact, there's a, there's a chapter I wrote in the book that uh, it's, it's called a word about fuck. Because fuck is like a, a, a verb, adjective, a noun in prison. And, and, but the, the chaplain just spoke beautiful English. He was uh, a, a very nice man. And he tried to uh, bring out, uh, he, he would bring like matzah on Passover for us. There were two other Jewish guys in the yard. So there were three of us. He, he'd bring matzah. Um, he, would, uh, he would try to inculcate us with, you know, what's going on, with what holidays they were. But he was an intelligent man that I could talk to and didn't always agree with what he was telling me because I'm not an Orthodox Jew. Um, he was uh, a Hasidim. And so I look forward to that. Look forward to family visits. Um, How often they, is that? Hmm? How often is that? Well, visitations every weekend. Uh, if your if your if your visitors are approved by the system, they have to apply through the system. There's a criminal background check on them, and then once they are approved, uh, they go through like a TSA kind of uh, check uh, when they come in, looking for uh, all kinds of contraband. And uh, for example, you're talking about weapons. Women that that, that have I, I don't know if you know anything about bras, but sometimes they have. Uh, um, uh, the the uh, underneath there's a wire that supports the bra, and and if they would check women for those because those could be pulled out and become weapons right away. And a good friend of mine lost her new bra and she was upset but happy to see me. It was kind of strange. But, um, you can't wear blue jeans when you come visit because inmates wear blue jeans and you have to wear shoes that have backs on them because in case you have to run, uh, you can't be wearing sandals. I mean, there's all kinds of rules that people don't know about, but seeing family, uh, you can't really, you can kind of hug maybe once, but not a whole lot, not a lot of contact. Um, but you get to see, you know, your, your family. 
Um, so that's something you look forward to. This, the, the, really, the thing you look forward to is clicking off another day. Just click it off, click it off. Because I, I had a date. Men that don't have dates means they're doing life. And they have clocks with no hands. And I, talking to them is another out-of-body experience. What parts of the experience were, and maybe there were none, but were there any parts of the experience that were actually better than you were expecting? And I would even go as far as to say, were there any parts that you in a weird way enjoyed or found peace in? Or is that just me being far too optimistic? Ooh, um, you make your own peace inside. So you create your own world and it's not, it's a, it's a parallel world to what you're used to. So, um, if they're going to be serving pie that night, and it's, it's pie wrapped up in a, you know, in it's, 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 it's apple pie, but it's in a, it's, it's in a thing you have to rip open. Um, you, you can Jones on that all day. Hey, we're going to have pie tonight. Apple pie. It's cool. But you got to watch out for the goats. Goats are, goats are inmates that, you see, we, we were in like a 1,200 to 1,500 calorie day. And if you're a Samoan man, you weigh 400 pounds, that ain't going to do it. Or if you're a, if you're a weightlifter and, and you're toned uh, and you're exercising, that's not enough calories. So goats are people that walk around the mess hall and you don't get a long time to eat. You get maybe six, seven minutes to eat. So it's not a lot of talking, but they come around and they stand by behind you and they'll point to something like your apple pie and say, man, you're going to eat that? You ain't going to eat that, are you? And, and you have to make a decision. So I'm giving you an example of all day you could be like jonesing for this apple pie, but a goat come along and to save yourself, you give it to this other guy. So your bubble is burst. And oh uh, on that level, it's huge. On the level of being a free person, it's almost comical. Do, do they, I mean, again, I know a lot of these details are in the book, so I'm not trying to be redundant. Do they give you a schedule, like a, like an actual, you know, printed out schedule or a mark a schedule on the board somewhere? Or do you just, you just are told from place to place where you're to go next? Um, you would not, you know exactly where you go next. There are, there are, every day there are five head counts. It's called count. They're always counting. So there's a count after lunch. That's a breakfast. There's a count after lunch. There's there's a count after um, uh, downtime because everybody has to stay in for a while while they look around the yard. But it's five times where they count you. Um, and between those periods of time, you know where, where you're supposed to be. If you have a job, you go to your job. I had a job in the library, which was really apropos for me, mm -hmm. uh, but but it was not easy to get. But I got I got a job in the library, and I looked forward to that because I like books. I obviously like to read, and I and I like helping the guys that didn't have the education that they wanted to have to kind of guide them and give them reading material. They had a they didn't have a computer, but they had a, a, a Britannica uh, uh, encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, and some of these men would come in, and they would come in. And I got them to talk to me in this way, say. Hey, lawyer, let me have a, a letter E today. 
So I go give them Let It Eat to the Encyclopedia Britannica and say, what are you interested in? They were mostly interested in looking at the pictures because they weren't all that literate. So I would spend a little bit of time with them. And we, we had a, a, we had a, a, a program, a, a CEB program for a high school, get your, your, your high school equivalency test. And I, I helped establish that program. I ran that program. And we had three men that actually got their high school diplomas doing that. So I look forward to those kind of things. You know, is, is, is Jose or Juan going to be able to do this because he's not that good in English? And, uh, but I got a lot of pleasure from that and a lot of uh, positive feedback from, from the men inside. 25 months go by. It's the day, it's the day you've been thinking about for 25 months. I mean, there have been things in my life where I've been waiting, waiting, waiting. It finally happens. It's so exciting. I have a feeling that that pales in comparison to what you were feeling the morning or the day that you were free to go. Can you, can you take us through that day? Sure. Um, uh, men are released from prison in the early morning, or first thing in the morning, and you know, I was there for 25 months. And during that 25 months, the um, I would hear men, you know, their name would call. Uh, they would be called, and you know, and before that, they, you give away your stuff because you don't need a lot of this stuff. So you give away your clothing, you give away maybe a little radio that you might have. So there's that almost like see you know it's like a farewell you you they they make you uh they make you a, a special spread uh which is a meal that's made in a garbage bag <laughs> um and it's sort of a joyous thing so you that, that built up that morning when your name is called in my in my case your name is called and you 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 say goodbye to everybody and um you walk to the Sally Port, which is the exit and entrance of a, of a, of a jail prison. And uh, you walk out. Uh, they actually, what they do is they, they, your family can send you fresh clothes. And my parents sent me clothes. It was in a box and I was able to put it fresh clothes. And then they give you $200 cash and say, good luck. <laughs> um, and then the, the, if you have prearranged ride, which I did, actually it was a, a girlfriend of an inmate that I had met who came and picked me up. Uh, then you're let out and you get your ride and you go home. And the first place I wanted to go was to a Denny's because I had missed Denny's. And do you have Denny's in, Cal in Canada? Of course, and oh. and I feel like that's the type that's the type of food that I would probably be craving too. So I I, I love yeah. that or McDonald's. <laughs> well, mine was Denny's, and it was just you know uh, hamburger and French fries and flavor and, and a Coke. So that was that that made that day. And um, but it's a bittersweet situation, Jeff, because um, what do you do when you come out? And that's the reentry issue, which I, I write about, which you hear about a lot about in the news. Where I was fortunate, I I, I had a family to go back to um, uh, who who actually it took me 14 months to like was on my feet to support myself but my parents were very generous in in letting me go back most men don't have that and i assume men women don't they don't have that they don't have the family connections so they go back to where they go back to the gang 
and and when they go back they've done time and that elevates them in the the, the in the hierarchy of, of the game the the games it's called stripes or bones actually it's bones bones or stripes are the same thing and there's certain tattoos that um, I learned to read that tell you how long someone's been in and how many times that they've, they've been in and even what their crime was. It's, uh, tattoos are like a, like, like um, hieroglyphics. You get to read them. And I write about that a lot also. Um, so I was very fortunate that I got a job almost right away, ironically working for a man in a multi-level marketing company who was, who was doing very, very well. And I managed all his funds and all his money. And my crime was grand theft, I must say. Um, but he gave me a chance. And that's what I needed. And that chance uh, was, 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 what, was what allowed me to re-enter and keep my head up high and then move on from there. The title of your book is what being a lawyer taught you about how to survive in prison. And I'm curious, what what did being in prison teach you about life and about freedom now that you're on the other side? Prison to me was a microcosm of what's out there in the streets. It's 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 the same the same kind of issues, the same kind of um, the same people, but they're compressed. So it's it's more intense. Um, I met men, I met, I met a man named Angel, um, who was from Los Angeles in a gang. And just to give you a perspective, when I, I got to talk to him, he was interesting. He had shaved his eyebrows and, and on, on his left, where the eyebrow would be, it was, it was born to, and over the right eye, it was die, born to die. And in talking with this man, he, he, his life in Los Angeles was his gang. His entire family had been through the criminal justice system and been through jail. But what stunned me was that he never saw the Pacific Ocean. He had no idea. He'd never seen it. He lived in Los Angeles. That taught me something. And that taught me that um, the criminal justice system, the, the, the this machine that we have of, of putting people away who have been uh, uh, impacted in their childhoods, because most of these men have horrible, horrible childhood experiences with no bonding, no nobody to look up to uh, as an adult. And they do their best. And their best is getting into a gang and, and usually getting into drugs or other crimes because that's all they know. So. It just highlighted to me the nature of the problem and how society has marginalized these people before they even got into prison. And then you're in prison, you come out, you're even more marginalized. There's no place to go. And my constant thought is, how do you break this chain? How do you how do you overcome this? And I don't have the answers because it's a real tough problem, very complex. And so that's what I came out with. It was like that's why I had to write about it. That's why I went from let me tell you about what happened to me to let me tell you what's wrong with the system. And that's what I write about. I also write uh, a blog and on, on my website and uh, on all kinds of subjects. It's usually the intersect between incarceration, criminal justice system and psychology. 
because in the in my area of work, I, there was a lot of psychology representing men and women who were sexually abused. I had to learn about the psychology of trauma and how that worked. So it was a microcosm to me. It's 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 nothing's really changed, unfortunately. Uh, there is uh, there are many wonderful movements out there that bring to the forefront uh, issues of men and women uh, and juveniles, and also um, people seek, seeking um, asylum in this country. I used to practice immigration law in Orange County, and that's a whole nother story. And it's 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 very sad, and it's doing a lot of damage to young people. You know. And I don't, I don't say this lightly. There are people out there who might not be in, you know, a penitentiary, federal or state penitentiary, a, a prison or a jail. Now we know the difference, but who might feel trapped in their own right. Yeah, I imagine there is so much that they can learn from your story. If if they're listening to you, what what do you tell them? What what I, what I tell them is kind of what I learned in prison, and that's to appreciate the small things and, and sort of take pleasure in, in little things that, that only you really can, you yourself can enjoy. You, you, you've got to work on building up your self-esteem and respect. And a way to do that really is to get a good education or get a trade that resonates with you and to avoid the criminal justice system because it is ruthless. Mm. Once it doesn't let go, especially if you're a young man um, and young man, and especially uh, people of color, because the, the numbers are totally disproportionate as far as, uh, the numbers of people in prison and, and, and their race. Like there's 13% African-Americans in this country and there's 40% yeah, of, uh, you know, in, in, in prison. There's, there's something wrong. So you, you've got to take stock in yourself. And that's not just a cliche, it's real. You have to appreciate yourself and respect yourself. And, and how you do that can be up to you. But the road should be to get an education, getting a skill, getting a job. Um, because you're not going to get in prison. There's no training in prison. There's, there's no rehabilitation in prison that I saw. It's changed it a little bit in other places, but not what I saw in California. It's also, it's also that R word resilience. You know, that's, that's something that really clicked with me when you said it. I think, I think we as humans, we completely forget how resilient we are, that we can be put in the most horrific circumstances and horrific's relative but you know for us what is horrific and how we can and will push through and survive um mark where can where can people keep up with your story your blogs your book well about me and my story and and my blogs is on my website which is uh, www dot it's my name mark m-a-r-k middle initial e as an Elliot Roseman, so it's markyroseman.com. And it's all there, all the blogs, my background, uh, where I speak, and things such as that. Mark, I I want to thank you. I think this could have gone on for hours if I had it my way, but 
uh, you don't have that obviously all that time and i don't think my uh my podcast account would let me upload that type of uh file without charging me uh, obscene amounts thank you so 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 much i hope everyone checks out markyroseman.com checks out the book and i i really really commend you and appreciate you for sharing this story and not just because it's interesting or novel but because there's so much to be learned and so much that that people can uh really get inspired by about it so thank you mark and thank you for what you're doing i I appreciate this outlet i've listened to some of your your other uh podcasts and they're really very interesting you have I'm, i'm glad to be a member of your group here Hey, you're one of the early ones. So when this thing becomes the next big thing, you can say that you were episode six. That's like, you know, employee number one at uh, Apple. (laughs) Okay. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you very much.